Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it's really good to see everyone this morning, wherever you are, whether you're in the hall or whether you're at home. It's really good to be together in God's presence, isn't it? And I hope that you're really enjoying our Red Letter Days series. I'm really enjoying going through these letters from Jesus to the churches. Um, one of the things I'd like to look at this morning is just a recurring phrase that we find throughout these letters from Jesus, which is Jesus says repeatedly, I know, I know. And the thing that struck me in reading these letters again and again in the last couple of months is just how they are so personal, these letters. They're not distant, but they're very personal and they're really passionate. Jesus has great passion for us, his church. One of the things that I was reminded of the other day, an email dropped into my uh, inbox at work, and it was from our chief executive. Now, I used to be part of a company where there was probably about 30 of us in the company. Then we got taken over, and we were part of about 200 people. Then we got taken over again, and we're now part of 500 people. Now, there's about 1,500 people in the company that I work for. So when a letter comes, or an email from the chief exec, um, it kind of looks like it's personal, but you know it's not. And sometimes there'll be references maybe to Gene in accounting who's just done a wolf run or something. And you know that the chief exec has no idea who Gene is, but someone's told him that Gene has done a wolf run and uh, needs to be congratulated. It's an attempt at connecting. It's an attempt at being personal. That's not what we have here in these letters. We have someone who knows the people he's writing to and knows them personally. He knows them by name and he has a passion for them. And today I want to look at a couple of things. I want to look at how Jesus knows us and how he can help us. Simple as that. How does he know us and how can he help us? And I think one of the ways in which we can understand how he knows us is these seven statements that Jesus makes to the churches. To each church he makes a different statement about them. It not only tells us something about them, but it tells us something about how Jesus knows them. And just so we're clear... These letters were written to real churches, to real people, but they were also written to us because we are the inheritors of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus spoke these words, he knew that they would ripple down through the ages and resonate through the church. And I believe that in each of these statements, as we just take a look at them this morning, that some of these statements are going to resonate with us. There are going to be things in here that will resonate very personally with you. And the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you this morning and to give you great comfort knowing that he knows you. He knows you personally, as we'll see. Now, the first church that Jesus writes to is the church in Ephesus. And Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And Jesus knows our hard work. He knows the work that we've put in when no one else is looking, the work that we've done behind the scenes. He knows what we've done, and he recognizes our hard work. But here's the thing. He also knows when our work has become toil for us. And as we looked at right at the beginning of this series, that was the problem for the Ephesians. For the church in Ephesus, the people had been fastidious about their doctrine, but in all of that, they'd lost sight of their love for him. And it was a tragedy because if you think about it, the church in Ephesus, Paul spent about three years there laying a foundation of his gospel, teaching them about the love of God. And the apostle John spent many years there. He was the apostle that oozed and emanated 
the love of God. He knew Jesus personally. And if anyone could tell you about the love of God, it was the Apostle John. And despite that foundation, they'd forgotten about the love of God. It had come away from the center of their thinking. And it is so easy to do when we get focused on one thing to the exclusion of other things in our life. And the one thing we have to be focused on is Jesus and not those other things. There are two types of works in the Bible. There are good works and there are dead works. Good works are the things that spring out of our love for Jesus. Dead works is basically everything else. Dead works is everything else that is completely ineffective in the kingdom of God and will not add anything to you and will not help you to grow in your relationship with God. And for the Ephesians, they'd slipped into dead works and they weren't doing good works anymore. The good works that Paul had said, God has prepared in advance for you to do. One of the things that I think has been a great benefit to us in the last 15 months or so, with everything that's happened, with the pause in activity, it's been a really good opportunity to step back and to say, what am I doing with my life? Where is the focus of my life, of my routine, of my work? Am I doing what God wants me to do? And the only way we know that for sure is when he is front and center, when we are in a loving relationship with him and his love is the center of our life. And from that place, that's when he can direct us. That's when he can tell us what we should be doing. And I think there's great benefit to be had in taking time to drop everything and step back and say, Lord, what should I be doing? And I want all of us not to miss that opportunity. I know many of us have done that. But if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to encourage you to step back and say, Lord, are you front and center? And am I doing the things that you've called me to do? Now to Smyrna, he says this. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Smyrna was one of the couple of churches that didn't have a rebuke from the Lord. Smyrna was having such a great uh, time of uh, persecution and tribulation, and they'd suffered so much. They'd suffered personally, they'd suffered professionally, they'd suffered socially in the environment in which they found themselves. And Jesus was saying, I know what you've suffered, I know what you've gone through, I know what you've lost. I know the things that you're grieving for and the things that you're mourning for. And one of the things I think that I've been struck with in, in the last year or so is the fact that COVID has not only separated people physically from one another, but it's separated us in terms of how it's impacted us as well. If you talk to people, you will find that we all have different experiences of the last year or so. We've all been impacted in different ways depending on our circumstances, depending on our personalities, depending on our maturity in the Lord, depending on the family we have around us, depending on our jobs. In so many ways, we all have a unique experience in the last year. And the wonderful thing, I think, is that Jesus can say to you, I know. I know what you've been through in the last year. For some of us that have suffered physical loss, I know what you've been through. I know what you've lost. One of the things I think has been really powerful in the last 12 months is the spotlight that's come on the issue of racism. And it's highlighted something that many of our brothers and sisters have suffered in silence for many, many years. But here's the thing. Jesus wants you to know if you've suffered that, he knows. He knows what you've suffered in silence sometimes. 
He knows you. You've not suffered alone because he's been with you in the midst of it. And you know, for Smyrna, the thing that I would expect the Lord to say is, I know what you've suffered and I'm going to take it away. The really interesting thing is, he doesn't do that, does he? (laughs) He doesn't say, I know the tribulation you suffered and guess what? It's about to stop. He doesn't say that. Because sometimes the Lord doesn't swoop in with a quick solution and relieve the situation. Sometimes he says, I'm going to come to you in the situation. And this is the interesting thing. He says to them, your poverty, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but he says, but you are rich. And for the saints in Smyrna, he wanted them to know that despite the outward persecution, despite the trials, despite the loss, despite the tribulations, he was saying, I'm giving you and have given you something that is truly rich. You may not see it, you may not be aware of it, but I'm compensating you with something from my treasury, from my heavenly resources that will enable you to endure what you're going through and to become an overcomer in what you're going through. The prophet Isaiah said this, to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory. And if you've suffered tribulation, if you've suffered poverty, the Lord is saying to you, you are rich and I will compensate you. If you're mourning, he will give you a crown of beauty. If you're feeling like you're in despair, he will give you festive praise in your heart because he's a restoring God. What did he say to Pergamum? Pergamum says something really interesting, I think. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, lots of people are curious about what did Jesus mean by that? What do you mean where Satan's throne is? And we don't know for sure, but we know that Satan had a stronghold in Pergamum. We know that Satan was comfortable there. We know that Satan was welcome there. And that's where the saints were based. And Jesus was saying, I know where you live. And I know the strongholds of the enemy that are there. I know where you work. I know where the strongholds of the enemy are. And lots of us have faced enemy strongholds. Maybe where we live. It may be with people that we know. Maybe our neighbours. Where there's a situation that's unpleasant something that's come against us. It may be in the workplace where there can be great friction and there can be people that seem to take a stand or a dislike to us. And sometimes the enemy's at work. Sometimes the enemy is trying to come against us. And Jesus says, I know where those strongholds are. The tragedy for the saints in Pergamum is that although they stayed faithful in their confession, they had accommodated things that were not of God. In other words, the enemy was encroaching and they decided to accommodate that so that they could have an easy life. And I will put my hands up to say there are times when the enemy has encroached in different areas in my life and the Lord's had to say, you've let the enemy come in. You've let the enemy move forward and you need to take a stand against the enemy. Sometimes it's going to be the places where we go. Maybe the places um, where we mix with friends. It may be the places where we work. 
And God wants us to take a stand. God wants us to come against the enemy, not just to be a quiet little mouse in the corner that just keeps yourself to yourself. Well, I'm nice, that's fine. God wants us to take a stand for him wherever we are, to be a light into the darkness. And one of the things he's given us is the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. If you're facing a difficult situation, you can say to the Holy Spirit, give me a word of knowledge. Give me something that I need to know in this situation, which I cannot know in the natural, but will make a difference that will unlock that situation. Give me a word of wisdom to know how to handle this person or this situation. And whenever we ask, the Holy Spirit will give us what we need. And he's given us the gift of prayer. You know, when Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and he talks about the weapons of warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about always being in prayer. And we need to be a people who are constantly in prayer and praying into the spiritual realms, asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what's really going on all around us. Folks, there is a battle raging right now all around us. That's what the the Word tells us. And we need to be those who open our eyes and say, God, I want you to mobilize me where I live, where I work, to be a light into the darkness. And I want you to equip me and to arm me. And with those things, I'm going to go forward and be obedient to your Word. That was the Word to Pergamum. Theatira, he says this. He says, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. The great thing about Theatira is that they had grown. The commendation there is that you've grown in those things. And he knows when we've grown. He knows our growth. He knows the things that we've grown in, how we've matured. But the problem with Theatira is they had also allowed something of the enemy to come in. They'd allowed impurity to come in. They'd allowed worldly thinking and principles to come in. And there are times in our life when the Lord wants to say to us, you have grown, but there are some areas of worldly thinking and worldly principles that you have started to embrace. The problem with these things is that they're quite pervasive. They're all around us in the world in which we live. The principles of this world and the thinking of this world is all around us. And so much of it will contradict and oppose the principles of the kingdom. So we have to be those who are ever mindful of that. Not paranoid, but mindful. And sometimes we have to be those that open our hearts before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything that's crept in? Is there anything I've accommodated in my heart, in my thinking? Am I applying principles that are not of your kingdom? And the Holy Spirit will say, that needs to go. You've started to think about that in the wrong way. Let me show you what I think about those things. Let me show you what my priorities are in that area. And the Lord will help us. Now to Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I sometimes think this is the scariest one of all, these statements. Can you imagine how you would feel as a member of that church? That Jesus himself said, I know your reputation, that you're alive, but you're dead. And the next thing he says is, wake up! Wake up! 
Scary stuff, isn't it? Jesus said it because he cares. He says it because he knows what we're really like. Just think about yourself for a minute. Think about the things that people say about you, whether they be people that are acquaintances or friends. Think about the things that people who know you well, how would they describe you? Think about the person that knows you best. Maybe it's your your spouse. But do they really completely know you? (laughs) I'd say they can go pretty far. But there's only one person who really knows you, who really knows me. And that's him. It's Jesus. Jesus really knows me. I can't fool him. I find it concerning, but I also find it comforting. (laughs) Because despite knowing me completely, he loves me. Despite knowing all the ugliness of which I am aware, and I'm talking about myself here, by the way, not you wonderful people, but all the ugly things that have happened in my life and in my thoughts, he knows all of those. And yet he loves me. Yet I still bring pleasure to him. I'm an object of his affection. I'm the apple of his eye. And so are you. But he knows you. It's a salutary lesson that our public persona, maybe our online persona, needs to be the same as our private persona. Who we are in public needs to line up with who we are in private. Now, I'm not saying you just say whatever you want in public. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, is that the two need to be aligned with each other. That's what Jesus wanted from Sardis. He said, that's the problem here. And sometimes it is our problem. Sometimes... Sometimes it's just outward pressure. Sometimes it's peer pressure. Sometimes it's because we just feel we've got to be something that we're not. We start to present a bit of a face, even to those closest to us. And we have to be honest about ourselves. And we can be in the household of God because we are loved and accepted. Because if Jesus loves you and accepts you, how can I not? How can I not? And I know you would feel the same about me. He says to Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is, this is a little bit uh, belittling, isn't it? I know that you have little power. Thanks, Lord. But you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. The saints in Philadelphia were facing closed doors all around them, in society where they lived, in their work, in their professions, closed doors. And that was being um, motivated by the enemy. Again, the enemy was coming against them. I'm sure most of you at one time or another have faced closed doors in your lives. I have, lots of times, where I feel a door is being shut in my face. And I'm not talking about the Lord asking the Lord to close the door if it's not the right way, by the way, just to be clear. I'm not about doors that shouldn't be shut, but are shut. You know, one thing that stayed with me from earlier this year, when Anna spoke about the risen Lord, he said, um, because Jesus walked through walls, he said, there are no closed doors to the risen Lord. There are no homes that are closed to the risen Lord. Because if the door's shut, he'll just walk through the walls. But Jesus said to the saints in Philadelphia, I have the key. I'm the one with the key. I have a master key, a key that can open any door. 
And whatever closed doors we may be facing, whatever closed doors you may face in future, whether it's professional or personal or spiritual, whatever area of life, he can open the door. And it's interesting, for Philadelphia, the way he opens the door is kind of not what I'd expect. I'd expect that the closed doors, which in some times was the areas of trade because they wouldn't participate in pagan practices, that the Lord would just change the heart of someone. But actually he said, I'm going to show those people how much I love you. I didn't expect that, Lord. Is that the thing that will make a difference? It will be, yeah. I'm not going to take them down for you. I'm just going to show them how much I love you. And I'm going to melt their hearts. Sometimes we'd... We don't know how the Lord is going to make a way forward in a situation. But he knows how he's going to do it and he knows when he's going to do it. And we need to always be mindful of that. We always need to remember that. And lastly, he says to Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. Roger Aubrey spoke to us about this last week, didn't he? And this statement that Jesus makes, I want to spit you out of my mouth. (laughs) Wow. He knows when we're coasting, folks. He knows when we've taken our foot off the gas. We can say the right things. We can go through all the motions. We can put that public persona on. But he knows when we're coasting. He knows when our heart isn't in it anymore. He knows when we've drifted into indifference. You know, on on the chat this week we had with Roger, Ian pointed out that they didn't get to that state of affairs just like that, that it was a gradual progression, it was a gradual degradation, it was a gradual deterioration in their motivation. And I think sometimes we have to be honest, if we're drifting toward indifference, is that we've got to put a stop to it. We've got to go back to Jesus and say, Lord, my heart is growing cold and I need you to come and show me the things that first captured me and captivated me. If you've started coasting in the last year, if you've started coasting in the last year and drifting towards indifference, today is your red letter day. Today is your red letter day because... Soon enough, things will return to a semblance of what they were before. Life will get busier. Contact will increase. And if you're coasting now, you really will be coasting then with all the distractions of life that we'll have to deal with as life gets busier and things return to normal. And the Lord is saying to you now, stop the rot. If you're coasting, now is the time to come before me. And let me fill your heart with fire again. Let me ignite you with the passion that's burning in my heart. The zeal for my house can be the zeal that's consuming your heart. So those are the ways in which he knows us. But how can he help us? You know, we started this series talking about the fullness of Christ. You see, these letters and these words that seem so harsh and seem so penetrating... They're coming from one who wants to help us. And how does he help us? He doesn't give us a few steps here and and a few techniques there to get ourselves back on track. He says, look, whatever your lack, whatever your weakness, 
Whatever the thing is you're struggling with, whatever the deficiency, let me come in and fill the gap. Let me come in with my fullness and live my life through you. And you needn't worry about the the weaknesses, the deficiencies or the struggles because I'll make up those things. I'll fill the gap and bring you up to my fullness. That's what Jesus is doing with his church, all of us, stone by living stone. He is restoring us and raising us to the full measure of the stature of Christ Jesus. That's where we're going, folks. And this is the nitty-gritty of how he does it. All of these things, and there are so many more we could say this morning, he's come to fill with his fullness. This is not about identifying lack or weakness or struggles or prevails. It's about finding God's grace in it all. And the Apostle Paul knew this full well. The Apostle Paul knew that in times of weakness, he could discover the strength of Jesus within. He said this, that God had said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul wasn't wallowing in those things. He wasn't ignoring those things. But he was seeing them as an opportunity for Jesus to come in and fill him in those things. And for Jesus to get the glory. So he wasn't discouraged by them. And the wonderful thing is that God knows us. Jesus knows us personally in our situation. But empathy is fine, but I need help, Lord, with some of these things. And the great thing is is that in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have the knowledge of God, that intimate personal knowledge, and we have the power of God come together in us, in, in that one person of the Holy Spirit. He came to fill us with the fullness of Christ because he's the spirit of Christ and he came with the power to do it. That's why Paul says, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, but it's he that works in me to bring these things to pass for his glory. And the wonderful thing is that the Holy Spirit occupies this unique position of knowing us intimately and being able to help us infinitely. I remember a long time ago, Um, when I was a teenager I remember sitting on my bed distinctly remember this experience and I I was really struggling with loneliness I was really lonely as a teenager I loved being around people I failed exams because of it because I just couldn't stay in and study and be on my own and then I remember one day I was just reading Psalm 139 and David is saying you know me That's all he's saying. You know me. He said, you've searched me and known me. You know my heart. You know when I get up. You know when I go to bed. You know a thought before it comes to my mind. You know when I leave the house. You know when I come back. You're in front of me. You're behind me. You're beside me. There's nowhere I can go where I can be away from you. Even if I go into darkness, you'll be light there for me. Even when I was being formed in the womb, you were there and you knit me together. 
You have the most intimate knowledge of me. And I remember this light bulb went on and I thought, there's only one person on this earth that has shared every single moment of my life. And that's the Holy Spirit. That's what David's telling us. One person. All the people in your life. If you've been lucky enough to have um, wonderful parents, they won't have shared every moment of your life. If you've been blessed to be married to someone that knows you really well and has been with you, they won't have shared every moment in your life and they won't have shared every thought in your head. But the Holy Spirit has. And that's how he knows us so intimately. And that intimate knowledge is so important because if the Holy Spirit is going to help us and bring the fullness of Christ to us, then he has to understand how we're put together. You see, all of us are like a, a really complicated, can't even say the word, it's so complicated, complicated mechanism with so many different parts. We're so complex. There's nothing as complex as us in the whole of the universe. There's nothing so amazing as a human being. And the Holy Spirit, like a master craftsman, actually put us together and is now restoring us. When things have broken in the mechanism, when parts aren't working properly, when something's worn out, he knows how to fix us. He knows the adjustments that are required. He can take us back to our original design. He's a restorer. And that's what he does. We were originally designed to grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is with us. He understands who we are. He shared every moment of our life. And with the wisdom and the skill of a master craftsman is restoring every part of our being and making us who God designed us to be and not how sin has distorted parts of our lives. I'm so blessed by these letters. They're personal, they're passionate. He loves us, he knows us. We're so blessed, aren't we? But I'm also sobered by these letters because I know these letters are to us, but I also know there's another letter that Jesus wants to write to me. I know you, I know your works. The thing is, what comes after that? That's quite a scary thought, isn't it? What comes after that? I know you, I know your works. What's the next sentence? Well, the great news, folks, is that we can, be, we can have a hand in that. We can be part of what happens next if we cooperate with this wonderful Holy Spirit who's filled our hearts. Father, I want to thank you that you care. Thank you, Lord, that you cared enough to send your one and only Son your only begotten son. And Lord, I thank you that he cared to send his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and to bring us to the fullness of Christ. Lord, in these red-letter days, we want to be those who respond, Lord, to our red letters, to, to respond, Lord, to the words that you are speaking, to be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And Lord, I pray that you would speak personally and passionately into each of our hearts and change us and mold us and make us and fill us with the wonderful fullness 
of Christ Jesus. In his mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you, folks. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.